Okay, thank you, Jack, and thanks to all of you for coming. Um, today I'm going to talk about um, mammalian reproductive strategies and what some of the implications or repercussions of different strategies have been um, for uh, one of the major groups of mammals, marsupials. And really, I'm, I'm going to frame this in, in, in the form of a battle between marsupials and placentals for dominance uh, of the mammalian realm over the last, say, 65 million years, or maybe even going back to 100 million years. I think we all know who won, though. Okay, reproductive strategies are something that's really variable across animals, uh, actually across all organisms. And when you think about the differences in, in different strategies that we see just within vertebrates, you have a wide range of things from um, things that are purely egg-laying um, to live-bearing um, forms, and forms that kind of mix up these, these different uh, approaches. So, you know, we have things like live-bearing sharks, or um, live-bearing sharks, and also egg-laying um, sharks. Uh, we have really strange things like seahorses, where the males are the ones who are actually carrying the young, and so you can see the, the proud male uh, father seahorse in the middle top there. Um, and then even within relatively closely related groups, like within snakes, we see live-bearing or egg-laying um, forms within relatively close, closely related groups. So there's a lot of variation in, in how organisms reproduce, and these decisions, or not decisions, but these different pathways that they've taken have implications not only for their kind of immediate reproductive success, but also for their long-term evolutionary trajectories. And even within, you know, even within all live-bearing forms or within egg-laying forms, there can be a lot of variation uh, in strategies. So, for example, if we look at birds, which I think we can all agree um, lay eggs, um, I personally had one just a couple hours ago. Um, within those uh, egg-laying forms, we have a wide range of forms from altricial, which are the forms that give birth to relatively undeveloped young, young that um, probably don't have feathers developed, can't open their eyes, cannot survive on their own. They're wholly dependent on their parents for, for care for a long period after they're born. And so some examples of, of altricial uh, young birds are shown in the top. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, we have precocial birds. So these are birds when they're born, they can really be left to their own. In some cases, they're entirely left alone with no amount of, of parental care. And so a lot of the, the water birds, ducks, and things like that would be examples of precocial animals. Now, if we look at this within mammals, we see the same variation of altruciality to precociality. So we, as humans, are fairly altricial mammals. I mean, babies aren't very good at fending for themselves. Um, and a lot of things like rodents, primates, and carnivorans are pretty stereotypical altricial mammals. So you can see this, this panda holding its newborn baby. It's uh, taking care of it by holding it in its mouth there. But you can see that's not an animal that's going to do very well on its own without a lot of parental care. On the opposite end of the spectrum for mammals, we have very precocial animals. And I think probably a lot of you who have seen nature documentaries um, recognize that ungulates, you know, some of the various hoofed animals, are really good within a couple of minutes of birth. They're up and running around. Um, so you can see that's a very different level of, of development, really, from what we see at the top end of, of the screen. Now, these are all placental mammals. And when we talk about altruciality and precociality, because we are placental mammals, and because the majority of mammals on the planet right now are placental, we tend to look at this dichotomy. But once you look at the other mammals that are on the planet, the marsupials and the monotremes, this spectrum gets shifted uh, pretty far to the top. So whereas an altricial placental mammal, something like a human baby, 
something like an altricial or, or a newborn marsupial is far, far less developed at birth. So you can see um, across the top we have a newborn um, monotreme coming out of an egg. These are, of course, the duckbill platypus and the echidnas, the, the, the few um, egg-laying mammals that are around today. And then we have two marsupials. And you can see when they're born, they're basically not much more than a worm. You're looking at something that has a mouth and some forelimbs, and then spends a very long time in the pouch developing before it's anywhere near the level of kind of independence that you would expect, even from an altricial placental mammal. So what we're going to talk about for the, for the next um, you know, half an hour or so is how these differences between this very, very altricial um, reproductive strategy of marsupials has impacted their evolutionary success. Now, extant mammals, for those of you who aren't um, very familiar with the mammalian clade that we're part of, is divided into three major groups. There's the monotremes, the egg-laying mammals, again, the duckbill platypus and the echidna. Um, and there's only five species that are around today. Um, so they're not very diverse, and we're not going to talk about them too much because there's not really much fodder for uh, um, you know, statistical tests when you're looking at a group that's that small. Then we have the marsupials, which are the pouched mammals, although not all of them have pouches, but they all share this very altricial reproductive strategy. There's about 300 species of those around today. And then we have placental mammals. That's our group. We're far more diverse in terms of species numbers and in other ways. And so when we look at the diversity of mammals, if we look at you know, placental mammals and marsupials and, and monotremes, we look not just at the species numbers, but also at their morphological or ecological diversity. We're usually talking about the diversity of, of the placental mammals. And again, that relates both to their taxonomic and kind of uh, ecological diversity. If we were to look at a phylogenetic analysis or an evolutionary tree of all the mammals that are around on the planet today, the vast, vast majority of them are placentals. And in many cases, this is the main reason people ignore marsupials and monotremes. But they can tell us a lot of interesting information about the evolution of reproductive strategies in mammals and also uh, what, what reproductive strategies um, can impose, what kind of constraints they can impose on the evolutionary success of different groups. So just to give a, a really quick introduction to each of these three groups and what kind of diversity we do see around today for them. Um, here are the monotremes. Um, this is pretty much a selection of all of the living uh, forms. But we've got a duck-billed platypus, obviously a very specialized animal, does lay eggs, and, and you can see um, you know, some examples of these are some suckling um, platypi. So they still have maternal care. Um, obviously, they're mammals, and so the one thing that all mammals share is this relatively high level of maternal care and, of course, lactation. And so even though um, monotremes don't actually have um, lactation in the same way that placentals and marsupials do, they still actually lactate onto their stomachs. And so these are suckling platypi that are actually lap lapping milk up off of their mother's stomach. Um, so, so quite an unusual form of um, mammalian maternal care there. And then we have echidnas, the spiny anteaters. Um, these are also very specialized for a, for a digging lifestyle. I mean, you can see an echidna egg hatching and, and see the level of development that they are when they're born. So really also very, very altricial animals. Then we have marsupials. And marsupials, hopefully most people are relatively familiar with. Everybody likes kangaroos, and probably some of you have maybe even hugged a koala or two, um, which I highly recommend if you haven't. Um, and marsupials are split into kind of two groups. One is the American group of marsupials, so opossums and forms like that. Um, and then on the Australian side is really where we see probably the more impressive marsupial diversity with kangaroos and um, 
tree possums, Tasmanian devils, marsupial moles, which are quite specialized, and, and really more of the specialized forms of, of marsupials are found in Australia today. And then when we go to placental mammals, this is a huge jump in terms of diversity of, of forms. Uh, we see, obviously, things that are a bit um, maybe more normal, like pandas and rodents and things like that. But we have aquatic whales, things that are entirely specialized for life in the water. We have bats, these really, um, really um, amazing powered flyers. And then, of course, we have weird things like humans popping up. Um, so you know, clearly placentals have done a, a lot of different things that marsupials haven't really gotten to, but they're sister clades, right? So they've been evolving for the same amount of time. Um, so there's no necessary reason why marsupials um, wouldn't be expected to have evolved into the same variety of niches as placentals, but they clearly haven't. And even when we compare things that are within the same kind of ecological zone, we see that placentals have taken it to a much farther step than marsupials have. So marsupials do have semi-aquatic forms, um, like this form over here, but it has some webbed feet. That's, you know, it's okay for an aquatic form, but it's not a whale. There's you know, gliding marsupials that have these uh, stretched skins between their limbs, and that definitely helps when you're jumping from tree to tree, but it's not a bat. And a kangaroo even is maybe comparable to a placental cow, and they are relatively specialized but they still don't go as far in changing their limbs as what we see in horses or cows or any of the placental ungulates. So why don't we see that happening? And what people, because, because we've grouped these different um, mammals based on their reproductive strategies, the first thing that people go to is, is it reproductive strategy? Is it the marsupial reproductive strategy of giving birth at this really early stage and then having this long period of carrying their baby around in a pouch? Is that limiting their evolutionary potential? And you can really break down the two different strategies that we see in these groups by simply looking at gestation time, so that's time that they're being carried around in the womb, versus lactation time or weaning time, the time that they're outside of the womb but still dependent on their mother for most of their nourishment. So in marsupials, they have very, very short gestation times um, in the order of you know, a few weeks after conception, these things are born. But then they have very, very long lactation periods. On the other hand, placentals have very, very long gestation periods and relatively short lactation periods. So we, as placental mammals, go through the majority of our kind of main developmental um, stages while we're still in the womb. Um, and in many ways, we're just kind of getting bigger once we get outside. Marsupials are in a very different life stage when they come out of the womb. As you can see, there's a newborn marsupial up there um, on, um, you know, in the, its mother's pouch, and it's basically, again, just looking like a worm versus something like a mammal, a placental mammal that can run around. And just to put this in a more direct comparison, there's a newborn marsupial, there's a newborn placental. And if we want to know if these differences that we see at birth between these groups make a difference, what we first have to look at is whether there's kind of larger developmental differences associated with, these, with this change between altruciality and precociality, or whether, um, whether really it's just one sped up or you know, we're just stopping it at a different point. Um, so are there differences? And in order to do that, we need huge comparative collections. And this is the kind of work that you, know, you can get some of from laboratory specimens, but for the large part, we're dependent on museum collections and collections at um, you know, institutes of zoology and places like that, where we can get nice staging of, of specimens, and in many cases, things that are rare or even extinct today. 
So this is some work that I've been doing with, with a, a bunch of collaborators from the world. We've got a really nice comparative data set of development for a lot of placentals and a lot of marsupials. And our data come from you know, micro CT scanning, so using a lot of the relatively new, um, newly available imaging techniques um, to get this kind of data. So micro CT scanning, clearing and staining, you will see pictures like this a lot. This is an, um, a, an early uh, or a newborn marsupial. And what I've done in this case is actually stain it so the bone is red and the cartilage is blue and everything else is obliterated. So you can see that in terms of how much of its skeleton is actually developed when it's born. It's really just the mouth and the forelimbs and not much else. Um, and you can see that also in the micro CT scan, the white parts are bone there. So this is where we get this kind of information from. And when we analyze this data and try and identify if there's differences between marsupials and placentals when they're born, what we find is there are some really stunning differences. So placentals, um, if you look at the sequence of events during their development, they start off developing their nervous system and then their somatic system, so like their skeletal system and their musculature, that kicks in a little bit later. But both of these are fairly well developed by the time they're born, which is indicated by the red arrow. Now if we look at marsupials, we see something pretty different. We see that they start their skeletal development earlier, so they really start developing their mouth and their forelimbs earlier, um, and then their nervous system starts developing much later. In fact, really, by the time they're born, they don't really have much in terms of a nervous system, just the bare minimum to be able to get out and crawl to the pouch. So that's a huge difference between these two, these two groups. Marsupials definitely delay the development of their brain, and they accelerate um, or they speed up the development of their mouths. And if we look at the limbs, we actually see something also really different between these groups. Placentals really develop their forelimbs and their hind limbs at about the same rates. Um, obviously, a horse isn't going to do much good when it's born if it can only run around on its front feet. So it has all four when it's born. Marsupial, on the other hand, not so much. It develops its forelimb really quickly, but by the time it's born, it hasn't even started on its hind limb. That's enough for that. It can put that off for later. And the reason they do this is because of this important step in marsupial development. When a marsupial is born in this really, really tiny, maybe slightly disgusting state, I apologize to any of you who are eating your lunch, um, but this is, a, this is a newborn marsupial, a newborn kangaroo coming out, and in a second you'll get a good shot of what this thing really looks like um, at birth. It's amazing that the mother actually even notices that this is going on, I think. Um, but there it is. So you can see it's really just this weird embryonic looking, you know, um, one of my PhD students calls it a jelly baby, which I actually don't know what that is, but it sounds gross. Um, and uh, it's crawling to the pouch where it's going to attach itself to a teat for the next many months, and that's where it's really going to go through all of its development. But if you can see what it's doing here, it's crawling um, up into the pouch. So it needs powerful forelimbs to be able to do that. It really has to speed up the development of its forelimbs to be in a state where it can do that after just a few weeks after gestation. So that right there, I think, is, is the key that people are looking at when they're talking about marsupial constraints, where this very early development of the forelimb and the function that that forelimb has to be able to do within a few weeks of conception um, potentially means that it can't really do much else with this forelimb afterwards. It can't, you can't go from a climbing uh, forelimb into a flipper, because that would require a complete reworking of, of the forelimb. Okay, so this is the idea. You're born, you look like this blob, but you have this huge forelimb. And because you have to have that huge forelimb, and that huge forelimb has to be adapted for climbing, 
you can't then take that and become a whale or become a bat or even a horse. Now, this is something that people have looked at um, in, in the last few years. And actually, this appears to be the case. If we, take, if we measure forelimbs across all the marsupials, and we measure forelimbs across all the placentals, and we do some fancy statistics to try and see which ones show greater variety of forms. So this is just a graph that essentially is showing you which one um, occupies a greater variety of forms. The marsupials in this first um, graph, which is the forelimbs, are occupying this amount of space whereas the placentals are occupying a much greater amount of space. So marsupials show about maybe a quarter of the diversity of forms from what we see in placentals. If we look at the hind limb, which you know isn't really subject to those same constraints, marsupials may be about three quarters of the range of forms that you see in placentals, and that's actually not significantly different. So we do see that there's this difference between um, the diversity of marsupial forelimbs and marsupial hind limbs, and that really fits what we would expect with this forelimb constraint hypothesis. Now we can also look at not just the diversity of forms we see across adult organisms, but we can look at the diversity of forms that we see through development. So are marsupials um, changing their forms as they develop, or are they really kind of all doing the same thing? And this graph is maybe not the easiest to, to, to um, understand, but these arrows are basically representing changes in shape through development for different species. So each arrow is a different species. The gray ones are placentals and the black ones are marsupials. And what we see is, you know, if we look at the, the orientation of the arrows for the placentals in this, um, in this what we call a morphospace or an anatomical space, um, they're kind of going in all different directions. You know, placentals actually have lots of different ways of, of changing their shape through development. If we look at marsupials, on the other hand, they kind of all tend to do the same thing. The only one that actually stands out is this one over here, the eye. And that's the one group of marsupials that doesn't have a crawl to the pouch. And they've kind of changed their shape a little bit more than the other marsupials. But it does seem like whether we look at across living adult species or whether we look at just developing mar marsupials, they don't show the same kind of variation in forelimbs that we see in placentals. Now, you could make the same argument for the mouse, right? Because that mouse region is also really well developed at birth. Because remember, these guys have to, they have to crawl out of the pouch. But once they get up into the pouch, they also have to suckle. And that suckling requires uh, musculature and oral apparatus. So your jaw bones have to be formed by the time you get there. So you can make the same argument that the, the face or the mouse region of marsupials are also constrained. And so this is something that we've been working on. And I'm going to talk a lot about the work of one of my PhD students, Verity Bennett, who's looking at um, shape comparisons of the skulls across uh, living placentals and marsupials, and also a lot of fossil forms. And the other set of data that I'm going to show you are um, the developmental data that I've been gathering over the last several years. And that's looking at how skull shape changes through development in marsupials and placentals. So these two different data sets trying to get at that same question. And as I mentioned before, we get this kind of data from lots of different sources. And a lot of this is really exploding in the last few years, really, as we have more easily available and, and less expensive imaging equipment. So we use laser scanners. We use micro-CT scanners. We use 3D digitizers, um, 3D microscopes, all kinds of different tools to get comparative um, quantitative data on shape for everything from newborn babies or embryonic um, mammals all the way through to fossils. And that's great, because that gives us the same data for a lot of different um, kinds of specimens. And so 
some of Verity's results um, have actually really shown uh, that, in fact, what we think we would see for marsupials does appear to be the case. If we look at living marsupials, they show a lot less diversity in their skulls than placentals do. So in the dark gray is, uh, are the marsupials, and the light gray are the placentals. So you can see over here there's a, a primate skull, um, various horse skulls. And then over here are the, are the living marsupials. And they, they are significantly less variable in their skulls than placental mammals. So that fits what we think, right? But then would we necessarily expect the entire skull to be constrained? Because remember, the entire skull isn't, isn't developed at birth. It's really just the mouth. And so what she did, which was quite cool, is she broke this data set down into the different regions of the skull. And if you look at the back half of the skull, the neurocranium, where your brain case is and where your head connects to your neck, um, that region is not actually significantly less variable in marsupials or placentals. They actually show pretty similar um, variation. On the other hand, if you look at the front half of the skull, what we call the viscerocranium, those are developmental um, terms, that part of the skull does show uh, less variance or less diversity in marsupials and placentals. But she actually took this a step further, and because not all of the viscerocranium actually is is developed at birth. It's really just those few bones associated with feeding. And so if you actually remove those kind of feeding-related bones, the viscerocranium isn't actually any less diverse in marsupials or placentals. But if you look only at the oral bones, that's what's killing it for the marsupials. Those bones are not as diverse in marsupials and placentals. And so that's really the key difference between these two groups. Um, just these few bones in the front of the skull that appear to be constrained throughout marsupial evolutionary history relative to what placentals can do. Now, I just want to point out that this, um, this is looking that well, everything I just showed you is looking at living forms. But of course, the vast majority of, the, of these animals are extinct. You know, these are groups that evolved, uh, they're separated at least 125 million years ago, if not earlier. So if we're only looking at the groups that are around today, we're missing the vast majority of their diversity. Uh, and so what Verity's been doing is going through and getting really nice data on some of the beautiful fossils that are preserved in Brazil and Argentina and around the world, and adding them into this data set. And what she does, what you see automatically, and this is just looking at marsupials, is that the extinct marsupials do occupy kind of a range of forms or represent a range of forms that we don't see in the living groups. Um, so there's definitely more to marsupial diversity than what's around today. And in fact, even if you went back just 20, 30,000 years ago, you know, what the first Australians would have found if they went, when they got to Australia, a very different set of animals than what we see there today. So the modern fauna is in, in many ways quite depauperate. Nonetheless, if you analyze this against the placentals, you still get the same results. Marsupials do appear to be constrained, especially in that oral region relative to placentals. Now, the other thing I want to mention is that we're looking across all of these groups. We're looking at the full range of kind of ecological types. But, you know, that's not necessarily always a fair comparison. And if you look at just a subset of groups, like, for example, my interest, as Jack mentioned, is carnivorous forms. And if you look at just that carnivorous marsupials, um, which have evolved really crazy types, like way up here, you can see this form right here. This looks like a saber-toothed cat. For those of you who are probably familiar with that animal, this is a saber-toothed marsupial that was around until a couple million years ago in South America. This is by far the weirdest mammal that's ever been around. It had these ever-growing canines with the roots going way up over its eye sockets. I mean, that would have been, I think, a pretty formidable beast. I'm really glad it went extinct a couple million years ago and isn't roaming around South America today. Um, but this shows a, a form that's really different from anything else, marsupial or placental. 
And so when you're just comparing, say, marsupial carnivores and placental carnivores, well, in that case, actually, you know, marsupial carnivores do appear to occupy kind of a similar range of forms from um, placentals. So even though we talk about these as constraints, they're not, they're not um, hard constraints. There, there are a few things that do kind of break through these constraints, but it's few and far between. For the most part, these constraints do define these groups. Okay, so that's if we're looking across kind of the range of um, adult forms or, you know, adults and, and fossils, which are presumably adults. But what about if we look at how these things change through their development? Uh, do we really see um, that also marsupials are, are less variable as they develop than placentals? Um, and, and so to do this, I've been gathering this data set over the last few years, and um, what I'm going to just show you right now is just a comparison of two species, one marsupial, monodelphus, which is a lab animal, and a placental shrew, uh, Cryptotus. And I have a lot of specimens for um, several stages that kind of span their birth to weaning time range. And basically, I'm taking specimens like this. These are, again, cleared insane specimens. The red are the bony parts. And I'm using this, this instrument called a reflex microscope. It's really great um, a piece of equipment that lets me get micron-level um, measurements off of these skulls and then compare their shape changes. And just uh, so you know what we're looking at, this is monodelphus over here. Um, and that's a, a short tail of the possums that lives in the, sta in, uh, you know, in the Americas. And that only gestates for about 15 days. So 15 days after conception, it's born, and then it weans for 50 days. So you can see the, the ratio of, of gestation to weaning time. And that, compared to Cryptotus, the shrew, which gestates for 21 days and then weans about you know, two and a half weeks later. And when we look at um, shape change through the development of these two animals, keeping in mind that we're looking at a much shorter range of time for postnatal or after birth before weaning development in Cryptotus, Cryptotus still occupies a much bigger area of the, of the uh, morphospace or shows a much higher uh, variance than Monodelphus does. So th this already shows us that the placental animal is showing a lot more in terms of shape change through development than the, the marsupial does, even though the marsupial is representing about three times as much time. And then when we look at them um, separately, and we just look at the different age groups, we see something actually that's really interesting, and I'm not entirely sure I've gotten my head around this yet, pretty new data. Um, but when we look at Cryptotus, um, the shrew, the placental, we see that the Youngest specimens show the greatest variety of forms. So if you look at a lot of two-day-old shrews, they're going to be pretty different in their skull shape. They're going to have relatively high variance. By the time they're getting close to weaning, they kind of all look the same. They've really kind of all come down to the same kind of shape. The exact opposite happens with monodelphus, the marsupial. The earliest forms, the ones that are, you know, you know pretty fresh out of the womb, that are um, suckling, they actually show pretty much all the exact same shape. And then as they get older and as they're right about to leave the pouch, they all show a much greater variety of shapes. So you see these very different um, patterns through development for marsupials and placentals. Um, and I think this probably reflects uh, differences in um, selection pressures through development because marsupials obviously have to be functioning very, very early, whereas a baby placental can really just do whatever it wants for a while and doesn't really need to be functioning as, as, as much as monodelphus or marsupial that's very dependent on its development during that early part of suckling or throughout suckling. 
Okay, so that's just the beginning, and, and what I'm working on now is, is really developing our, this data set out to try to encompass the full range of living marsupials and placentals. So we're getting data from um, clear and sane specimens across the top for a lot of different museum collections. We're using CT scanning, so this over here um, is an armadillo, so we can look at developments through, um, through uh, um, well, looking at changes through development for taxa that are actually relatively rare, um, again, relying heavily on museum collections. And ideally, we're going to get everything, and what we already have really, is everything from an elephant to a mouse, um, that, that kind of range of variety of forms, and then we can really try to pin down this question. Um, I would say, however, that I find this figure right here to be really placental biased. So I would say we're going to look at everything from, um, you know, from an elephant to a marsupial mouse, which is a much cuter animal and presumably much more different. Okay, so the last thing I want to talk about, actually, is um, this, I, this last thing that I pointed out, or maybe actually the first thing I pointed out, is that marsupials also delay their brain development. So does that have an effect? And what I'm really asking is, are marsupials stupid? For those of you who have hugged a koala and looked into its eyes, I think you know the answer is, well, yes, kind of. You know, at least a koala is pretty thick. Um, but does this delay in brain development actually mean that they can't, um, they can't really achieve the same kind of brain sizes that we do as placental mammals who have this luxurious long time in the womb to grow our heads really big and uh, make birth such a horrific process? Um, I think for some people I've heard, I don't know, actually know myself. Um, okay, so in placentals, the, the big idea really is that brain size and gestation time are, are pretty significantly correlated. So the longer... Um, you're in the womb, the, um, the bigger your brain is relative to your body size. This is a long-standing hypothesis. Um, and really it goes to the idea that, um, that the amount of energy that your mother puts into you drives how big your brain is. And um, because gestation is a, is a relatively efficient way of getting energy to a growing baby, certainly more efficient than lactation, um, the longer you gestate, the, the bigger your brain can get. That's a pretty... Uh, you know, simple way of, of stating it, but that's the basic idea. Now, marsupials, of course, don't have this really long gestation time, so maybe they just can't get these big brains. But I think contrary to popular belief, and this is something that people always say, but actually when you look at the data, it just doesn't hold up. Marsupials don't actually have significantly smaller brains than placentals. Sure, the koala does, I mean, but that's an outlier. Um, another outlier that I think that drives this is us, of course. So this is over here, this is a comparison of brain, relative brain sizes, you know, relative to how your body size, um, we call that EQ, uh, for different mammals. Over here in, in gray are the, uh, are the marsupials, and then over here are the different placental superorders, as they say. Now our superorder, the, one the ones that humans and all other primates are part of, uh, if I can get the mouse going, um, is over here, Euarchontagliris, and you can see Homo sapiens are way off the charts. Um, but with the exception of Euarchontagliris, none of the other groups of placentals have significantly bigger brains than any of the marsupial groups, or most of the marsupial groups, actually. One of them is, is relatively dumb. Um, but actually, if we pull primates out of Euarchontagliris, again, this um, poorly named huge mammal superorder, uh, they're also not significantly smarter than, or bigger brained than marsupials. So I think we have to let go of this idea that marsupials are small-brained and, and stupid. The other thing that's kind of interesting, actually, when we look at how brain size scales with body size, is that small-bodied marsupials actually have bigger brains than, um, than similarly-sized uh, placentals do. 
And again, these are things that are not gestating for very long. So this idea that gestation is the only way to make a big brain breaks down pretty quickly for mammals. And so what does this mean about this, this idea that um, brain size and gestation are correlated and that's how you make a big brain? Well, I think for marsupials, what we find actually when we look at the data is that brain size and lactation time are significantly correlated for marsupials, not gestation time. So there's two different pathways that you can take, but both of them get you to where you need to go, which is a big brain. So marsupials, you know, they're born way over here after just a little bit of time after conception. They have this really kind of insignificant brain when they're born, but they have this very, very long period of lactation, and that gets them to a relatively uh, respectable brain size. With placentals, what we see is we have this longer gestation. When we're born, we have a pretty decently sized brain, and that gets you know, somewhat bigger through lactation. But it's different, different pathways, but they get to the same ends. And so it doesn't appear that the marsupial reproductive strategy actually constrains their brain size evolution. So just to kind of conclude um, in, in what we know about the effects of these reproductive strategies of marsupials and how it affects their evolution, yeah, they are less morphologically diverse. They're less morphologically diverse in their forelimbs because of that crawl to the pouch. And they're less, um, they're less morphologically diverse. They show a much less um, kind of variety of forms in their facial skeleton, mainly in the mouth re region. And that, of course, is because they have to suckle for so long and so quickly after they're born. And while that has constrained uh, their, their kind of variety of forms in their mouths and their forelimbs, it actually doesn't seem to have had any effect on their brain size evolution. So that's, that's good news for the marsupials. Um, so I'm not entirely negative about their reproductive strategy. And then I want to kind of end on a slightly more positive view of marsupials. We have this idea that they're primitive, right? We always do this where we're the humans and so everything is coming, leading towards us. But that's not obviously how evolution works. And marsupials aren't primitive. If anything, Marsupials are a lot more derived in, in terms of com in comparison to other mammal groups. So we're actually a lot more similar to, say, the duck-billed platypus in how we develop than, than the marsupial is. So marsupials actually, I think, are the most specialized of, of the mammal groups. Um, so why would you do this? You know, you can't become a whale. You, you know, will have a hard time even specializing your mouth. Why be a marsupial? And that's because it's actually a less risky strategy. If you're living in an unpredictable environment, carrying around a baby in the womb, you can't get rid of it if things go south. But if you have it in the pouch and you know, environmental conditions change, you can ditch it and then try again later when, when things start get better. And so this is the idea for marsupials. So that's the strategy that really benefits you if you're living in an unpredictable environment. And this may well have conferred some um, advantages to them early on in their history. And in fact, marsupials do do better in placentals at various times in the past. So if you look at North America, you know, 65 to 100 million years ago, way more marsupials than placentals. Even though placentals were here, the marsupials were out competing us. And this, just to end on a, a fairly arm-wavy note, one possibility is actually that this is how uh, marsupials made it to Antarctica through Antarctica into Australia, when placentals who are also living at the same time in South America weren't able to. So just a quick recap of marsupial kind of paleobiogeography. Bio they start off in China. They're all over the Northern Hemisphere by um, you know, 65 million years ago. Move into South America, 
And then around 50 million years ago, or by 55 million years ago, they crossed Antarctica into Australia. That's really well constrained by the fossil record. And even though there's placentals in South America at the same time, and we even have placentals from the northern tip of Antarctica, the one that's closest to South America, they never get any farther. So maybe it's because the marsupials were able to make this trek, ditching their babies as they needed, um, you know, and make it across the harsh plains of Antarctica. Um, and leaving the placentals behind to carry their big burdens for nine months or wherever. Okay, so just wanted to thank um, all of my collaborators, lots of museum collections that supported us and gives access. Jack, of course, for the invitation and uh, various funding agencies. Thank you for listening. Brilliant. Thanks, Anjali, for such an engaging talk. Um, we do have... One or two minutes for questions, if there are any questions. There is one here. If you could just wait for a microphone, because they won't be able to hear you online otherwise. Thank you. Uh, did you say there were marsupials who didn't have pouches? Sorry? Did you say there were marsupials that don't have pouches? Yeah, a lot of the New World marsupials don't have pouches, actually. H how do they suckle? Uh, they just hang on. Okay. <laughs> they actually form a, like a complete... Um, tissue between the baby and the teat, actually. So they're pretty well hooked on there. You actually have to cut them off. Sorry, that's a horrible thing to say. But you do. If you want to get the babies, you actually have to um, cut them off of the teat. They can't, you can't really just pull them off. Thanks. If there is one more question, there's, there's just time for a short question. Yeah. Uh, you touched on the platypus. Um, it, it doesn't suckle. It makes a, 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 a table out of its stomach. How, how does yeah, it keep its young? Just, well, um, so mammary glands are, are um, kind of derived skin glands. And what happens in this case is they just kind of, the mothers just kind of leak milk onto their stomachs. And yeah, the, the baby, yeah. And the baby um, um, monotremes just lap it up off of their stomachs. Yeah, I guess so. Well, in that one picture early on, you could see it was kind of slouching. It's making a little pool. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Great, and I'm afraid that is all we've got time for. It just remains, remains for me to say thank you all for coming. This is the last lecture of terms. So I hope to see you again next time. And to, if you join me in thanking Dr. Anjali Goswami. Thank you.